Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to discuss a concept that you may not be familiar with, but to me it's just one of the most um, beautiful things that I've ever learned about, I would say. And it's called song lines. So song lines are special to the Aborigine people of Australia. And Australia is this vast place. And again, you may not be familiar with song lines or Aborigines. So let me just tell you who the Aborigines are, just in a, just in a sentence or two. They are this very unique, amazing people that were never absorbed and chose never to be absorbed into modern society. Meaning to say they've lived the way that they've lived with the same level of technology, which is to say no, no technology or whatever technology they've been able to come up with on their own for thousands of years. And their style of dress is unique. Their musical instruments are unique. Their culture is unique. And you have various populations of Aborigines around Australia. And remember, Australia, again, is this vast place. So how are they going to navigate their way around territories and go on trips? Again, remember, no instrumentation, even into the modern era. How are they going to do that on treks? up to, say, 2,000 miles, 2,000 miles long with no directions, and they have to know how to get there. How do they do it? So the answer is through song lines. So what are song lines? Now listen to this. They have a tradition and one that they have worked on to develop. They'll sing a particular song a certain number of times. So as they're walking, they're singing this song this very particular number of times. And then when they finish singing that song that number of times, let's say they'll turn right and now start singing this new song X number of times. And when they finish singing that, let's say they turn left and start singing this song a particular number of times. And by following the song lines, they get to the place that they need to go. Isn't that fascinating? That's an amazing idea. Now listen to this. Just like this song has guided them through the wilderness, you ready for this? The Torah is called a song. And the Torah has navigated us through the vast wilderness of the exile, through history. We've had a song. The song is the Torah. And it's told us where to go and how to turn and what to do in each situation. Now, there are more parallels, and I want to tell you a few more parallels because I think they're very exciting. As they trekked through various areas, the songs themselves that were designed for that part of the journey would describe the surroundings of the area that they were trekking through. Isn't that interesting? So 
they they had, so to speak, like their own guided tour from the lyrics of the song from where they were at that point during the journey for that song that was selected for that part of the journey. That's amazing. But now listen to this. We know that every week we have a particular Parsha of the Torah. And we know that whatever is going on in the Parsha, that's what's going on in the world. So we too have this song line. And we know that if you want to really know what's going on around you in terms of sort of deconstructing or unnodding, like this complicated like reality that's surrounding us, we'll just look into the Torah. Whatever the weekly Parsha is, that's a true essential description of whatever is going on in the world at the time. Another amazing connection. I'll tell you one more thing about the song lines that I really appreciate is that just like, like for instance, in the United States, Native American groups spoke different languages. You would think, well, they're all Native Americans. They probably all speak the same language. Very much not the case, right? The Cheyenne Indians and the, you know, Cherokee Indians, different languages. So, so some of the songs would be in different languages from the people singing them. But when they arrived at the place, the song was in the language of the neighboring people, the other Aborigine group that they were arriving at. In other words, this was a sign of peace and respect to them that they were singing a song in that community's language. Isn't that beautiful? So, so you would arrive singing a song in your host, so to speak, countries or community's language. So that, that bred good feelings and peace among the different segments of the Aborigine people. And of course, there are parallels in the Torah also. Right? In terms of we have a concept which is a very important concept in Torah, which is called minhag, which means that when you go into a new community, that you respect the customs of that community. If they stand during a certain prayer that you normally don't stand during, then you stand. If they're sitting during a prayer that normally speaking that you stand during, then you sit with them, that you are one and you are at peace with the people according to their customs and their ways. And, and that's a very uh, beautiful connection, again, between song lines and Torah. So I want to talk to you more about the journey of life right now. One of my favorite teachings in this world. The last, the Parsha that we just finished, which concludes the Sefer Shmos, the book of Exodus, it ends with the following information, that there was a cloud that sat atop the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert. And as long as the cloud sat there, the Jewish people remained encamped wherever they were. And when the cloud lifted, then the Jewish people knew that it was time to go to the next place in this journey toward Israel. Remember, there are 42 stops that the Jewish people made between Egypt and Israel. And that's a microcosm of all of history, because all of history is going from exile to redemption, which means getting into the land of Israel. That's what it means on another level. On the one hand, it's the land, it's the country itself. 
On the other hand, it's the era of perfection. We're traveling through the desert, which is the journey during exile, arriving at Mashiach, which is correlates with the Jews arriving in the land of Israel itself. 42 stops. And remember, the Baal Shem Tov says that each one of us in our own lives has 42 stops. Isn't that amazing? And what that means on a deeper level, I always knew that this was true, but I never saw it in a safer, but I just saw it in a book, okay? Which is that the 42 stops are not just 42 geographical locations. They also stand for relationships and spiritual levels that you reach during your journey through life. Okay, that's also part of your travels. It's not just through space. It's also through time and through soul as well. It's multidimensional travels that we're doing to get to that 42. So now listen to this. Later on in the Torah, one of the most mysterious passages in the entire Torah talks about the cloud sitting on top of the tabernacle and rising up. And it's so mysterious. Do you know why? Because it's endlessly repetitive. It just keeps on saying the same thing over and over and over again. Slightly differently, but the same thing. And the Or HaChayim HaKodesh explains it in the most beautiful way. He says, it's not repeating itself. If you know how to read it, it's saying the following thing. Now listen carefully, because when I'm talking about the traveling through the desert, I'm talking about each of us in our own lives and what we go through and in our own personal travels. Meaning to say, there were times when the Jewish people were encamped at a place that they didn't like. Now remember, I'm talking about us and our own lives at the same time. And do you know what the Jewish people did when they were in a place that they didn't like? As long as the cloud was over the tabernacle, they didn't rebel They remained encamped there. And there were other times when the cloud lifted and they had to leave a place, you ready for this, that we really liked and we didn't want to go because we really liked it. But it was time to go. And so in praise of the Jewish people, when the cloud lifted, we left, even though we wanted to stay. Now, let me just make this very personal because I I really mean this in a personal way. There are many times in our life when we have relationships that we want them to continue. And you know what? They end. We've got jobs that, hey, I really like that job. And you know what? Company went out of business. I got fired. I'm not in that situation anymore. There are times in our life where we want to get out of a situation We want to quit or we just want to run for the exit, but we see it through. You see what it is? When we want something to continue and it stops, what does that mean? It means that God has lifted the cloud and it's time to journey on. And God is taking us to the next place. But it's God taking us to the next place. So many times we think when something ends, at that moment we've become abandoned. But the journey continues. The cloud is lifting and God is just taking us to the next place on our journey. Chas v'shalom, God forbid, a million times you think that you should be abandoned at that moment. It's not the case. 
It's just God is taking you to the next place. And that's what it is. And how do we travel? What's our song line? What's our song line? That's the Torah. Right? And what is our cloud? Because we don't see the cloud. But you know what Rabbi Wolfson says? Something so beautiful. We know that whatever is going on in the Parsha of the week is going on in the world. Rabbi Wolfson, Shlita, takes it a step further. He says, God weaves the reality of time and space out of the verses of that week's Parsha. Do you understand what's going on? The cloud is right there. We're enwrapped in the Parsha of the week. We're enwrapped in the letters and the words of the Torah. But you want to hear something so amazing? God himself calls the Torah a song. It's a song that we're going through. Remember, the whole world is made out of the Torah. And the Torah is called a song. Now it says in Pirkei Avos, famously, that God spoke the world into existence. But I saw Reb Shlomo said, God sang the world into existence. And I always wondered about that. How can, it, how can Reb Shlomo say God sang the world into existence when the Talmud says God spoke the world into existence? And then I saw the words of Rabbi Trugman, and he said that if you take the word breishis, which is creation, which is this world, and you rearrange the letters of breishis, it spells shiras olive bays, the song of the olive bays, the letters of the alphabet. Remember, God created the world through the energies of the olive bays. In other words, the whole world is this harmonic convergence between all of the energies of the world. Shiras olive bays is brachis. We're living in a song. So then that means if every person, because we know if every person is a letter in the Torah, that means you're also a note in the symphony of creation. So how are you dealing with your brothers and your sisters and your neighbors and your coworkers? What kind of music is being made when you interact with them? If you're interacting with them with love, you're harmonizing the energies of creation. And you know something? If you're arguing, it's like caca, right? You know how bad, out of tune music sounds? It's... And let me just finish with this, because this is a thought that I've been trying to put into words for many years now. And I started learning this new Sefer called the Pischei Sharim. And it's, it, it put it into these words, and I'm going to just kind of express it my own way. But I want to share this with you. And I was talking with someone once, I, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but there was this person who was really acting erratically, like making bad choices and just like, kind of just like off in la-la land. And the person I was with referred to that person and said, you know, it's her movie. And I, I just thought those words are so amazing. Like it, what he was saying was, she's choosing to live in this movie, right? We, on a very deep level, choose the reality that we inhabit. Let me give you an example. Imagine someone's rushing to the airport and they miss their flight. There's one type of person who can say, the whole world's against me, God hates me, and that's the reality that they live in. 
Another person can go through that same situation and say, I missed my flight. God is saving my life. There's no question. And maybe I'm inconvenienced and maybe I even have to make, pay more money for the next ticket. But they go through that exact same situation. They say, God is saving my life. You know, I'll tell you a story on this subject from Rabbi Biederman. And it's a true story. It happened in Israel. An amazing story, which makes this point, which is it was the last train or rather the last bus from a particular area. And the people were, let's say it was 11 p.m. I, I don't know the exact details, but let's say it was 11 p.m. And they're waiting and it's 11.15. And these people are stranded and the, the bus has not come yet. And it looks like the bus is not going to come. And they don't know what to do. How are they going to get home? And finally, at 11.30, a bus starts driving by, but the number on the bus is it's a different bus. It's not their bus. But they don't know what to do. How are they going to get home? So someone or a couple of people run in front of the bus and they're, they're flagging their hands for the uh, bus to stop. The bus stops. They say to the bus driver, we're stuck. The bus didn't show up. And, and, and how are we going to get home? It's the middle of the night almost already. And the bus driver says, look, this is not my route. I don't know what to do. I, if, I could lose my job if I let you get on this bus and, and take you to where you need to go. And they go, but what are we going to do? We're stranded. And the bus driver goes, all right, get on the bus. And everyone gets on the bus and he drives them and he takes them to where they need to go. Sometime later, one of the passengers gets, goes up to the bus driver and says, I just want to thank you so much for what you did. And the bus driver says, listen, I got to tell you the truth. I'm your bus driver. <laughs> he said, but I was so late because I fell asleep. And then when I woke up, I thought to myself, when I show up this late, everyone is going to scream their heads off at me. So what I did was I changed the number of the bus <laughs> so that you wouldn't yell at me. Now listen to what Rabbi Biederman explains. And now listen to this very carefully. We're talking about travels. The same bus, the same bus driver. In one instance, had you known that he was actually the bus driver, when he showed up, you would have been furious. The same bus, the same bus driver, when he showed up, thank God we're saved. They couldn't have been happier. Same bus driver. Do you understand that it is you get to choose what reality you live in? You get to choose what reality that you're living in. And now I want to make it deeper. And I want to go to the Pischei Sharem right now. God creates the world. And from our perspective, God is either, he's here, but he's hidden, or we don't know, and we question because we have free choice. And the whole idea of God being hidden to begin with, by the way, is that so we should be capable of doing the wrong thing and yet do the right thing. We're the only creature in existence who has the ability, the desire to do the wrong thing and to overcome that desire and to do the right thing. And we put so much light into the world when we do that. But now listen carefully. What I realized in my own life, and I'm now telling you from my own personal journey, what I realized in my own life is I can see 
the world from my point of view, or I can dwell in the ultimate reality and choose to see the world as God is seeing it. Because from God's perspective, all that exists is God, (laughs) and it's all good. (laughs) And that's the ultimate reality. And you can choose to live in the ultimate reality, which is to go through the world and to see the world as God sees the world. You have that ability to do that. But the idea is that the Torah is that tool that's allowed us to navigate all the vicissitudes, all the ups and downs uh, of reality. And you know something? You could come up with a lot of different definitions for success. But I would argue a very, very powerful definition for success is, does it work? (laughs) If it works, does it work? If it works, it's success. And is there another system that has stood the test of time like Torah has and the mitzvot, the commandments of the Torah? In every age, in every civilization, in every corner of the world, the Torah has worked. This is, I mean, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. The proof is in the pudding. You know, one of the great quotes, and I'm going to paraphrase it. I wish I could tell you the exact words. But the Frida Karebi, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, came to the United States, and this is, you know, during the early 1900s, where where Torah Judaism had really not sprouted at all in the United States. And in fact, the, the, the contrary was true. It was just the Wild West in terms of Judaism, you know? It was just, you know, anything goes. And, you know, sadly, people were you know, reported to as as they were taking their boats from whatever part of the world they were arriving to America and throwing their tefillin overseas. Can you imagine? What a tragedy. Say And with the words, we don't need this anymore. Can you imagine? So this was the America that existed in the early 1900s. And, and not only was it like this, people said it can't be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise. This is just what it is. And you can't change it. And the Frida Karevi, right? The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe steps foot on American soil and he declares in this loud, strong, true voice, America is no different. America is no different. Right? Because the truth is the truth. Wherever you are, the truth is always going to remain the truth. Whether it's recognized or not, the truth doesn't stop being the truth. And we say, Torah emet. The Torah is the truth. So the Rebbe said, America is no different. In other words, Torah is going to flourish in America too because the whole world is made out of Torah. And sure enough, we see a blossoming of Torah in America now too a renaissance of Torah in America. You know, in America anyway, there's uh, two stories going on in terms of the Jewish people. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. But I'm just reporting to you what, what, what is going on right now. 
you know? There is a large majority that's just disappearing, absolutely disappearing into assimilation, unaffiliatedness, intermarriage. There's a plague of ignorance, a plague of ignorance on our people. And at the same time, there is a blossoming taking place among those who are attaching themselves to the Torah that is phenomenal. And these two stories are taking place at the same time. There is a slow motion train wreck going on in front of our eyes with our brothers and our sisters here. A slow motion train wreck that's going on. And on the other hand, this rebirth with fire and sincerity and truth and depth, this is what it is right now. So the question is, where are you? Where are you in all this? Where am I in all this? So there's a very interesting personality in Jewish history. He was called the, the Eisner Cup, which means the Iron Head. And he was the Rav of Lublin at the time of the Chose of Lublin. And there was a very famous antagonism between him because he wasn't a chassid, right? Which I think may have been one of the levels to why they called him the Iron Head. <laughs> but in, to, to honor him and chas v'shalom, not to disrespect him, it's, it was also because he was a very great genius. So, so it's like his head was made out of iron. In other words, his intelligence was so like unbreakable and super strong. Anyway, I'll just tell you one of the famous stories between the Chose and the, the Eisner Cup, okay? Which was that as the Chose was becoming more and more famous, you know, he was one of the greatest of the Hasidic masters and he was centered in Lublin, which was this Rob's community. So he told the Chose at some point, you know, you're attracting all these people. And the Chose was going to go on to be maybe one of the Rebbe's with the most Hasidim in history, thousands and thousands and thousands. So the Eisner Cup said to him, you know, you have to stop. You have to stop this. And the Chose said, what would you, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Just tell me what you want me to do. That's what I'm going to do. He says, well, you have to get up there and you have to tell them that you're not a tzaddik. They think you're a tzaddik. You have to tell them that you're not a tzaddik. So, so the Chose of Lubin said, absolutely. So before a large gathering at his shul, the Chose of Lublin stood up and said to everyone, I want everybody to know the truth. I am not a tzaddik. And everyone who was there said, what a tzaddik. He's such a tzaddik that he's declaring that he's not a tzaddik. He's even more of a tzaddik than we thought he was. So, you know, when God is on your side, it's just, it's going to go your way, you know? It's going to go your way. And there's just an example of it. Okay, so I'm telling you this just so that we should kind of feel like we're in Lublin a few hundred years ago. And now, interestingly, and this is a great testimony to the greatness and the beauty of the Eisner Cup, was that he had very good relations with the Abshisk and, 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 and the Yiddah Kodesh. 
So, so two of the great people who eventually will succeed the Chos of Lublin, he was on very good terms with, and they were on good terms with him. So, so you see that he really was a very open, great person, whatever his concerns were. And here's the teaching that, that I wanted to share with you. Again, this is the one that said, understand this well at the end of it. So the Eisner Cup had a, a question. Because it says in the Zohar, that, I just want to read it to you. You see, the Ashrei prayer, and I looked at this, and I can confirm that this is true. All you have to do is look at it and kind of go down the different psukim with your finger, and you'll see immediately that this is true. Every verse is a compound structure, meaning to say that every verse in Ashrei which, you know, famously goes through the olive base. There's, a, there's one, one verse for each of the letters of the olive base, except, of course, for Nun, that's contained within Samech. That's a separate teaching, because Nun means to, stands for the word nofal, which means to fall. And so King David didn't want to have the word, which means to fall, existing on its own, because then it would suggest endless falling. Right? Because it's all on its own, and it's just falling. So listen to the sensitivity and the beauty of King David. King David put that verse, which has the nun in it, which means to fall, within the next letter, which is the samich. Samich is a letter that's a circle. It means to surround. It's surrounding the falling one. And samich stands for somech. No fleem, to uplift the falling. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I just take a moment to tell you, how did King David, that's so divine, right? How did King David think of this? How did King David write the Psalms to begin with? The Psalms are this eternal book that every religion all over the world throughout time, they're reading the Psalms and it's speaking to them and to whatever they're going through in the moment. How could King David thousands of years ago have written something that resonates with all of humanity for all time? So I heard from Reb Shlomo, who said in the, that, that the Medrash teaches how King David wrote the Psalms. You ready? Well, first of all, we know that King David, in addition to being a, an incredible king and an incredible warrior, was also an incredible musician. And he had a, like a harp that he hung up over his bed. And listen to this. It said at Chatzot every night, that's at midnight, although depending on what time during the year is, Chatzot, quote unquote, midnight, comes at different times. But at midnight, at Chatzot, the energy of creation changes, okay? There's a transition at Chatzot, and there's an opening at Chatzot, that doesn't exist beforehand. So it's a special moment to pray, and especially a special moment to pray for the rebuilding of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. So, remember, King David is the one who wanted to build it to begin with, right? So Chatzot was this very special time for him as well. So he would hang his harp above his bed, and it said at the time of Chatzot, a wind would blow in, and it would strum the strings of his harp. 
right? Like you talk about a holy alarm clock. Like, you know, there are different settings that you can set your, your iPhone to. One of them is like this strumming and you can wake up to strumming like King David. But King David was like doing it in this divine way. So at Chatzot, in the middle of the night, the wind would come, it would strum the strings of his harp, he would wake up, and now listen to this. He would pray to God, please God, let me hear the prayers of all of Israel. And God would lift him up to the heavens, and David and Melech would be able to hear the prayers of all of Israel, and then David Amelech wrote down those prayers that he heard, and that became Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms. So if it speaks to all people at all times, it's because it was written from the hearts of all people. And you know something It's just occurring to me now as I'm saying it to you? You know the prayer that I say in the middle of the night? You got to know that's coming from my essence. So it wasn't just the prayers of all of Israel, it was coming from the prayers of all of Israel from the deepest place within them. And that's safer to him. So if you want to know how did King David have the creativity, the divine inspiration to take that letter Nun, which just means falling, and he wouldn't allow it to exist on its own. Because if it existed on its own, maybe that means endless fall. So he puts it within the circle of the Samech, Somech Noflim, to uplift the falling. So that everyone for all time who's falling should know that God has your arms around you and he's uplifting you even right now, even if while you're falling you're being uplifted. And that you're never alone. You see, I want to identify something, which I think is one of the big disconnects, you know? Like... You know, like a doctor, he's looking at an x-ray. He's saying, what's, what's going on exactly? What's wrong? What? And, and if we take it, an x-ray of our souls, there's certain knots that are there. And we have to figure out, where are those knots? How do we untie those knots? So that the heart and the mind can be together. And that nothing should get away. In between. Let me tell you one of the knots, okay? God is 100% present in this realm that we inhabit. God is as present in this realm that we inhabit as much as God is in the highest reaches of heaven. But God is hidden in this realm. And so people that the two can't go together, and this is where the knot in our heart comes We think, if God is hidden, God can't be present. But it's not true. God is 100% present, and he's hidden. And he's no less present because of his hiddenness. This is an essential teaching and bit of awareness that everyone has to know. There is no contradiction between the fact that God is as present here right now as he is in the highest reaches of heaven. He's just hidden. That's all. And there is no contradiction between the two. Okay. So now I want to go back to this 
question that the Eisner Cup asked Pshisk. Remember, Reb Simcha Bunim is the Kutzka Rebbe's Rebbe, okay? So is one of the key figures in, in Hasidic history. And he asks him, why is it in Ashrei that every single line, and this is, by the way, the Zohar, the Zohar is pointing this out, Every single line in Ashrei is a compound sentence. In other words, it goes, this is true, and then it has the letter Vav, and it goes, and also this and this. The letter Vav is present in every single line of Ashrei, which again goes from Aleph all the way through Taf, except for one, except for one line. And that's the letter Kuf. Now I'm going to read you what it says in the letter Kuf. It says, Hashem is close to all that call upon him, to all who call upon him sincerely. All right, there's no vav in that. And the Zohar makes the following explanation. It's missing a vav because it is one. Okay, so if you don't know what that means, neither did the Eisner Cup. So you're in good company. It's missing a vav because it is one. What does that mean? God is close to all who call upon him sincerely. Is missing the letter vav because it's one. So, so I'm going to put Reb Simcha Bunim's answer into my own words. But this is what he's saying. You know, by the way, now that I'm going to tell you what it is that Reb Simcha Bunim is saying as he's explaining the Zohar, I better tell you this story first. Which is a Rebbe said to his chassid, you can say all of my Torahs over in your name, just as long as you don't say your Torahs over in my name. <laughs> so it gives me a little pause before I tell you exactly what it is. One of the greatest Hasidic masters had in mind when he's explaining the Zohar to the Eisner Cup, right? I, I think I, I gotta, you know, take a step back or two before I make such a, such a statement. I'm gonna do my best to explain. How about that? How about that? Let's, let's get real. Let's get real. Okay. You know, I don't want to mention any names because I don't want to embarrass anybody, especially someone who's not in this world anymore. So, so Reb Shlomo was, was asked about another spiritual leader in the Jewish people. And Reb Shlomo said, you know something? Basically, I'm paraphrasing, basically, every piece of me is Torah. With this other person, one part's Torah, another part's Buddhism, another part's something else. <laughs> okay. So the Zohar says that this line, that all that God is close to all who call upon him sincerely, doesn't have a vav because it's one. You see, here's the question. Are you made out of different parts, or are you one part trying to get it together? Are you one part businessman, one part whatever, foodie, <laughs> one part Jew, one part husband, one part wife. One... In other words, what is your identity? Who, what do you, when, if someone asks you, who are you? 
Do, do you have an answer? I'll tell you a story. You know who had a great answer? Yonah. Yonah had a great answer. Let's, let's set the scene. It's like a terrible storm. I mean, like a storm that's literally ripping the ship apart. That, that level of a storm. Okay, we can't even imagine what that means. It's ripping the ship apart. That's how strong the winds and the waves are. And the people on the boat are, you know, losing their minds like, like they're right on the edge of death, basically. And then they say, wait a second, where's that guy, Yona? <laughs> like everyone is like in crisis management, to say the least. And you want to hear something crazy? They find Yona on the bottom of the ship, the lower deck, asleep during this. Yona is sleeping while the ship is getting torn apart. And they wake him up and they say to him, who are you? Okay, now can you imagine? You put yourself in that situation. <laughs> you wake up, these strangers are essentially shaking you awake. All of a sudden, you're in the reality of the ship being torn apart. And someone's asking you, who are you? And he, he answers, I'm a Jew. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. I'm a Jew. He wasn't... You know, who am I? I'm, well, I'm an American, but let me get a little more specific. I'm a Californian, right? I'm a writer. I'm a dentist. That's a lot of different parts. You see, if you want to be sincere, if you really want to be sincere, it says God is close to all who call upon him sincerely. If you really want to be sincere, you got to lose the vavs. No vavs. No vavs. Yeah, I'm Jewish, but I'm also this, and I'm also that, and I'm also this other thing. I'm also a great intellectual, right? It's got to make sense to me in order to do it. Because I'm such a great scholar, right? <laughs> do you know how the internet works? No. Somehow that's okay for you to use that, right? But you know how penicillin works? No, okay, you're using that too. Everything has to make sense to me, right? When it comes to my soul, but we're complicated. But we can choose not to be complicated. You know what we can choose to be? Imperfect. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I think... One of the determining questions of what type of life you live in this world is, what do you do when you come face to face with your own imperfection? A lot of people panic. A lot of people go into denial. A lot of people rationalize. And you know what every one of those rationalizations is? It's another vav springing up in their identity. It's because of this, and I'm also this, and it's because of that, and I'm also that. But how about being one simple thing and just saying, I'm not there yet. This is me, and I'm getting there, but I'm not there yet. But this is me. It's 100% me. I'm just not there yet. You know what? I know about this mitzvah, and I know about that mitzvah, and I'm not doing this one, and I'm not doing that one. Not because I'm denying the truth of it. Not because I don't think it's God's will. I know it's God's will. 
I know I should do it. I'm not doing it. You know why? Because I'm not there yet. But I'm a Jew. Or I'm a child of God. Right? Because we're all God's children. Jew, non-Jew. We're all God's children. And we all have a mission in this world. Remember, every single person, Jewish, non-Jewish, has mitzvahs in the Torah. Everyone is attached to the Torah because the Torah is God's will for the world. So everyone's got a portion in it. They have to have a portion in it. The whole world is made out of the Torah. And in fact, everyone does have a portion in it. So maybe I'm not doing this and maybe I'm not doing that. But not because this one doesn't apply to me. Or I'm not doing that one because it doesn't make sense. I want to do it all, God. I want to be sincere. I want to get rid of all these vavs, all these extras, all these compound identities that have sprouted within me. I want to clear them all out, pull out all the weeds. But I'm also not there yet. But I'm calling to you, God, in sincerity. And when God sees that, okay, listen, I know you're imperfect. I'm the one who created you. You don't think I know you're imperfect? But at least you're living in reality. And God says, okay, I'm close to you because we're talking the same way. Embracing our imperfection and giving up are two separate things. This is not about giving up. It's not about giving up. It's about knowing that as long as I'm alive, I have to grow and I have to take another step toward the truth. As long as I'm alive till my last breath. You know, as soon as a person stops growing, they stop living. Which means as soon as a person stops growing, they start dying. I don't want to spend my life dying. I want to spend my life living. But that means I have to spend my life growing. And growing means that I'm not there yet, which means that I'm acknowledging my imperfection and I'm living with it, but I'm also doing something about it. I'm challenging my own imperfection. And the road never ends. The road never ends. And it leads from this world directly into the next world. (laughs) And then we have elevations in the next world. It's an endless, beautiful journey. And now we're getting back to the song lines, right? Let me put it to you this way. The son of the Sanzer Rebbe, the Divrei Chaim, one of the greatest Hasidic masters, he had a child who also became a very great Rebbe. His name was the Shinover Rebbe. And they asked the Shinover Rebbe, what was the most important mitzvah to your father? The Sanzer Rebbe. Okay? And the Shinover Rebbe said, whatever mitzvah my father was doing at the time was the most important mitzvah. Now, the reason why I'm telling you that and why I feel like that's a, a relevant story is because he was taking his inner essence, which is his unadulterated Jewishness, and he was applying that to whatever situation, whatever time that he was in. And I'm sure, given his greatness, he was doing it in the most politically astute or socially aware fashion. But that didn't mean that he's also, you know, a a great citizen of the country, of the town of Sans. I'm a Sanser Yid. No, he was all Yid. But sometimes he'd be all Yid at breakfast. 
And sometimes he'd be all yid in front of the mayor. And sometimes he'd be all yid at the banking establishment. And so that's going from the inside out. And that is spiritual coherence and simple sincerity. What it means, what Rebbe Nachman is talking about being a Pashida Yid, a simple Jew, right? But you can be a simple Jew in the most incredibly politically challenging, complicated circumstances and be effective and real politic in those situations as a simple Jew. You know, I'll end with this thought. I had this idea one time. You know, when you say Shema, you're supposed to stretch out the last dalid of the word Echad. So, so you're supposed to say Echad. You stretch out that last dalid. And one time, I was stretching out the last dalit, Echad. And I thought to myself, you know, it sounds like a chauffeur blast. And then I thought to myself, you know what? Maybe the great chauffeur blast of Mashiach will be when the whole world is going, when the whole world is recognizing and declaring the oneness of God, revealing. Remember, God is already one. People are crazy. They think, through my belief in God, I am creating the existence of God. It's such a joke. I'm going to say it again. People think, through my belief in God, I am creating God. My friend, God already exists. <laughs> and God continues to exist whether you believe in him or not. And it's an aspect of God's greatness and his love that he keeps you alive while you say to the people that he doesn't exist. You want to know how great God is? God is keeping you alive as you are declaring that he doesn't exist. My friend Michael Mendelssohn there's a, came up with this muscle, and I love it so much. There's a new word game that's kind of become very popular. It's called Wordle. And if you haven't played it, if you're like, you know, like a crossword puzzle type of person, this Wordle game is really fun because it's really very straightforward and easy. I'll, I'll describe it to you because there's a very powerful Torah teaching behind this. The idea is that there's a, a, a five-letter word that you have to guess. In other words, the word is there, and then you have to guess it. So there's this little grid in front of you, and it's got five empty spaces, this grid, and below that, another five empty spaces and another five empty spaces. And you get five chances to try to guess the word. Okay. So you put down a five-letter word. Let's say you put down the word think. Okay, that's five letters. Now, if you guessed, if one of your letters is the right letter in the right space, there's going to be a little green box over that letter. So let's say the T of think has a green box on it now. So you know the word begins with the letter T. Okay, so in my next guess, I'm going to start with the letter T because I know that's the right letter in the right spot. Now, if there's a yellow box around the letter, that means it's the, it's that letter is in the word. You just have to find another space for it. Okay, and then the other letters that don't have a green or a yellow, those you can discard. 
because it's not in the word. All right, and then you can do process of elimination because those letters are not in the word and you've got a hint, you've got a green and a yellow, and then you go from there and you try to guess the word. So what's the Torah connection? You're just guessing what's already there. <laughs> You're not creating the word. The word was there from the beginning. It was just concealed. Just like God is here right now. Our job is to reveal his presence, is to reveal his oneness. He's already there. He's already there. We're not manufacturing him with our observance. We're not trying to convince the rest of the world that we're the right one. He's already there. He just has to be revealed. And how do we do it? Right? By being a harmonic note in the symphony of creation. By being one unified coherent identity, to get rid of all the vavs, all the multiple identities that we're compounding and complicated our structure with. Let's just be sincere. And if part of our sincerity is recognizing our imperfection, that's okay. Because God made us that way. He just wants to see that we're trying and that we're continuing to grow and we're continuing to try. And as we do that, we go further and further in our journey. And as all of us journey together, then we reach the promised land, which is the revelation of the oneness of God and the revealing of the perfection that God had in mind for creation from the very start. Let me just add one thing about the Mishkan. So the, what is the Mishkan? The Mishkan is this structure that we're building, but it's more than a building. Basically, we're turning the whole world into a dwelling place for God. Except God already fills the entire world. So then what is the Mishkan is that we are building a structure, a consciousness in the world to reveal that God already inhabits the entire world. Do you understand? that That's what's going on. Again, going back to Wordle, this idea that God is already there. God already fills the world. So then what is this dwelling place? What is this structure that we're making for him? We're creating an expanded state of consciousness to reveal what is already there so that we can properly be in sync with reality. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.